I'm an innocent man. I'll be back. Those were the words uttered by Grant Williams in 1998 after being convicted of second-degree murder and sentenced to 25 to life. Now, more than two decades later, his claim rings true, as the courts have overturned his sentencing in what was the first successful wrongful conviction case in Staten Island history. Welcome to the Staten Island Advances from the Scene, a podcast bringing you an inside look at the biggest stories on Staten Island with the reporters who cover them. I'm your host, Eric Bascom, and this week I'm joined by breaking news reporter Joseph Ostapiuk to discuss the exoneration of Grant Williams, a Staten Island man who was sentenced to 25 years to life in 1998 for a murder that prosecutors now say he didn't commit. Thanks for joining me today, Joe, to discuss one of the most interesting court cases in recent borough history, really. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it was definitely something that's unprecedented on the borough, for sure. Yeah, well, let's get started by giving the listeners some context before we kind of dive deeper into some of the specifics of this case. So last week, you attended the wrongful conviction hearing for Grant Williams, who served more than two decades in prison for a crime that they're now saying he did not actually commit. So can you give us a brief overview of the case? Sure. So we're going to go back to 1996, sort of get started. It was April 5th, 1996, in front of the Stapleton houses at around 6 p.m. when Shadell Lewis, who was 20 years old at the time, was shot by a gunman. At the time, police locked in on Grant Williams as a suspect. He was later arrested and then convicted in 1997 after a trial, and then in 1998 was sentenced to 25 to life. So let's dig into some of the details here. What can you tell us about that murder that took place in 1996? What happened? What what did police say at the time? Mm -hmm. So immediately after the shooting, the shooter fled the scene and two NYPD officers arrived to the area and began a foot pursuit. The perpetrator escaped through a courtyard before running into a building with an automatic locking door. It basically cut police off from the chase. A baseball hat with the Wu-Tang logo at the time fell off the perpetrator and it was later recovered by police. Police began asking people in the area, um, witnesses, what they had seen. A 17-year-old witness told investigators at the time there was an ongoing turf war between some rival crews in the area, and it was a possible motive for the fatal shooting. Um, They said it may have been retaliation for an earlier incident between Mr. Lewis and a man nicknamed Boo Boo. Boo Boo, uh, after a while, police ran it through their database, and it was linked to Grant Williams as his nickname. So that's basically how it started. Williams was arrested after that. Now, let's talk about some of the concerns that there were with this initial trial, right? That's kind of how we ended up at this wrongful conviction place where there was some concerns about the criminal justice process, including some excluded interviews during the original trial, police procedures that they're saying don't meet modern investigative standards. Can you walk us through some of these issues that we saw back during, you know, in the late 90s when this thing was still in trial? For sure. I mean, I think a good way to start this is what Mr. Williams said when he left court, you know, last week after this case. And he said he didn't think he was going to be convicted. You know, he he told me that initially when he was arrested, he thought that he would eventually be let go because he knew that he didn't do this crime. And then all of a sudden things started to pile up. All of a sudden he's going to trial. All of a sudden they're talking about it at trial. And he realized, like, what's going on here? I didn't think I was going to blow trial. I didn't think I was going to be convicted. After more than two decades in prison, Grant Williams is now 50 years old. So I thought, them, all right, they'll find the right guy, you know. <laughs> all of a sudden, they said, bring out the first panel. I said, what's the first panel? We all jurors. So he had a lot of concerns very, very early on. 
His attorney at the time, Felix Gilroy, argued that his client had been the victim of a mistaken identity and the prosecution had a number of inconsistencies. Police communications at the time, which were brought up in court, indicated an officer was chasing the gunman who was described as a heavyset male standing around five foot, five inches tall. Um, Williams, uh, I saw him in court not too long ago. He's, I'm six feet tall. He's probably a couple inches taller than me. Definitely not heavyset. So, and I was told that that was basically the same build he had, you know, a little over two decades ago. Additionally, Gilroy at the time said that he, the lead investigator in the case, was doing things that just didn't line up with how that they should have been doing it, including police lineups. Police lineups, as we know, are used to basically have witnesses identify people who are at the scene. That 17-year-old witness that they discussed, they got Grant Williams' nickname from that witness and they sort of worked backwards uh, prosecutors now say they got his picture and then used that for lineups and they said that it was suggestive and unfair at the time these were concerns that were brought up in the initial trial way back when but just didn't gather enough steam to overturn this and at the time williams was a very close friend with the wu-tang clan he was actually working at the studio and that wu-tang hat that dropped off the gunman's head was used to sort of connect him to the scene, though that's a very thin argument. And this wasn't lost on the jurors. The jurors had some concerns as well. This, they were deadlocked, and they actually wrote to the judge while they were trying to deliberate this, saying, quote, we are hopelessly deadlocked. And it took two days for them to come to a decision, and that's when they ended up convicting him of second-degree murder. So now, you know, we're 25 years later, the conviction has been successfully overturned. But with decades having passed since the sentencing, what prompted the DA's office to reevaluate this case now? And and why did it take so long for them to do so? For sure. That's a great question. So it doesn't really start with the DA's office. I I think it's important to mention Irvin Cohen, who's William's current lawyer, was contacted by Williams about eight years ago. And Cohen said the information that he received and the conversations he had with Williams demonstrated to him that this was, in all likelihood, an innocent man who was imprisoned. So Cohen and his team start to gather evidence. They know that if they're going to bring this case to a district attorney's to overturn a conviction, which is an extremely, extremely difficult thing to do, he's going to have to have very, very solid evidence. So Cohen and his team start to gather evidence, and and in about May 2017, he contacts uh, District Attorney McMahon's office with new information that cast doubt on the identification of Williams as the shooter, including over a dozen witnesses who gained sworn affidavits attesting to his innocence and some other information as well. Grant's case presented the usual difficulties in convincing a judge, or as in this case, a district attorney, that a person found guilty beyond a reasonable doubt by a jury is actually, factually, and conclusively innocent. Irving Cohen is Grant Williams' attorney. In this case, after several years, I presented sufficient documentation to strongly suggest that Grant was unjustly convicted. I was convinced, obviously, soon as I read, it, read his records, soon as I met him, but I needed to convince the district attorney's office. So that then prompts McMahon's office to launch a preliminary investigation 
into the case. He has a unit called the Conviction Integrity Review Unit that basically looks at these wrongful conviction cases and, and other cases as well and looks to see if there's any water in, in, in the proposal. So they furthered the probe. Cohen already started. You know, They interviewed over 50 people, went to seven states, five different correctional facilities in connection to the review. And they found exculpatory evidence that wasn't included in the initial trial. And they found a lot of concerns with that initial trial and that investigation. And in the end, they found that the prosecution didn't use uh, best practices for ensuring a fair and an impartial trial. And that the NYPD original investigation had some issues as well, including the, that 17-year-old's testimony, which we mentioned earlier. It, it changed multiple times. And authorities say now that that individual was warned that if he didn't cooperate with the investigation, that he would have further issues. But still, I mean, there were challenges. I mean, evidence no longer existed. As you mentioned, we're talking about you know two decades of time, a long time since the incident. People are all over the place now. You know, it's it, it's much easier to to prosecute this stuff in the immediate aftermath of it. But um, there were a lot of challenges. So getting to this point definitely is a is a significant event. Yeah. So so let's shift gears a little bit and talk about what you saw in the courtroom. Like, you know, as anyone can imagine, William's exoneration was obviously an incredibly emotional moment for, for both he and his family. So since you were fortunate enough to be one of those people in the courtroom at the time, what can you tell us about kind of the emotional outpouring that you saw from him and his family? Yeah, I mean, his mother, who was a few rows behind him, uh, was sitting next to his son. And I mean, she was emotional. She was being consoled by his son. And I mean, he was just, he was so excited. His lawyer was so excited. They were hugging, high-fiving. I mean, listen, even McMahon and and his team, they, they were excited too. It, it, there was a very unique sort of feeling in a, in a courtroom that doesn't normally happen. Um, there was both sides that were very happy. There were strong words said about, you know, the powers of prosecutors and that this man lost over two decades of his life for something that prosecutors now say he didn't do. So it, it was emotional. There was a lot of emotions going on from, from Grant, too. He was just excited um, to finally have his name cleared. He had been out on parole in 2019 after the, the district attorney's office wrote a letter to the state parole board saying that they had no issue with him being released. So he had been out for a little bit, but getting his name cleared was something that was a long, long time coming. Yeah. And you, you mentioned that, you know, obviously everyone was very excited, but he did still spend, you know, over two decades behind bars for a, a crime that he didn't commit. So what did William say about that time that he spent in prison? And, and how did he manage to kind of maintain hope that one day his name would be cleared? Yeah, I mean, I think that was one of the most remarkable things about this entire situation was that Williams just was an incredibly positive uh, upbeat presence throughout court, but you could also tell that he carried that with him every day that he was, in, you know, in prison. There's a lot of there's a lot of joy in my heart right now. You know, I went through a lot of pain. I want to thank my family, everybody that's here, my friends that been supportive, and my lawyer. When I met him, he brought more hope in my life that I would be free. I never gave up anyway. You know, so when I wrote him and I told him about the wrongful conviction, I used to tell everybody in prison, I'm innocent. They say, oh, when you over. Everybody, everybody says that. I said, I'm telling you the truth. One day you're going to see me on the news and, and you're going to see that I was innocent, right? And today's that day. I think that he, he stayed resolute throughout the entire thing. He said he really never lost hope that he would be 
proven innocent one day. And I mean, that was something that was just remarkable to see. This, this wasn't a man that was bitter. This wasn't a man that was holding things in and harboring ill emotion. He was just very resolute. And, and that's partially the reason why he was able to, to prove his innocence, because he was the one that was reaching out to, you know, Mr. Cohen to get this, um, to get this case overturned. He, he was very, very steadfast in, in trying to get this overturned. And, and I'm not sure he thought it was going to take this long, but I think this is something that, uh, <laughs> that he was happy it finally happened. Yeah, absolutely. Like like you mentioned earlier, it feels like something that was a long time coming. And, you know, you spoke earlier a little bit about how this decision to overturn the conviction came after an investigation by District Attorney Michael McMahon's Conviction Integrity Review Unit. So what did McMahon have to say about this case specifically? And, and what law enforcement officials and prosecutors can maybe learn from this moving forward? Yeah, I think to start, I mean, McMahon did his absolute best to make sure that this was all about Grant, uh, this was Grant's day, he said, when they came out of court. But he also mentioned that this is obviously a very, very important day for Staten Island, too. Um, this is the first time a wrongful conviction case has been overturned on the borough. But he also sort of had an introspective look. As a prosecutor, he obviously tries to put people behind bars when he believes that they committed a crime. But he said that this should also humble prosecutors and realize how important their job is and how powerful they are and how they can change people's lives. This is an historic moment for Staten Island, but it's not about that, but let me speak to it because this is Grant's moment. I want to be very, very clear about that. Michael McMahon is the Staten Island District Attorney. But this is also Staten Island's moment because this is the first time in the history of the Staten Island's criminal justice system that a look back was taken and an injustice was undone and a, a motion was, granted, was made and uh, granted uh, to uh, overturn a wrongful conviction, and it's a great day for Staten Island. But he made it clear that the things that they learned, he hoped that they would ensure, you know, that they would inform his office to ensure this never happens again. He said that this would never happen while he was in office. So I think that that was an important thing that he basically took away from this, that prosecutors have an immense amount of power. And in this case, the sort of speedy way that Williams was, first of all, identified as a suspect and then put behind bars was something that they, they definitely lamented and, and wish hadn't happened. And, and as you know, on this podcast, we like to not only discuss the, you know, these major stories, but also kind of dig into the reporting process and, and what this can be like and kind of bring some of our listeners behind the scenes. So I'm curious, you know, as a breaking news reporter, you're used to responding to events in real time, covering fires, car accidents, shootings. So what's it like covering a major court case as opposed to responding to breaking news as you typically do? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think there's obviously a much more formal feel to being in the courtroom. You sort of feel like you're going all over the place and you're on a breaking news scene, you know, talking to neighbors or talking to witnesses. I think the main difference for me is that being in a courtroom has, it's where the rubber meets the road. Breaking news scenes are usually the initial stages of an investigation. Police are trying to figure out what happened. We're trying to figure out what happened. But when you get to court, things are either in the process of that finishing up or they already have finished. This was unique entirely because I had never been in a in the courtroom when somebody's wrongful conviction case, nonetheless somebody's wrongful conviction case that put him in jail for 20 years was overturned. So I think that to me, that was just a, I don't even really have a comparable to be honest, and I'm not sure I ever will again. So, I mean, that's something that was just, uh, it was unprecedented to, to see and 
to just be in the room. And I, you know, I sort of joked afterwards and that both sides were leaving the courtroom smiling, hugging, and sort of on the same page. And that, that very, very seldom, actually, I'll say never happens, you know, in a courtroom. Usually somebody's leaving unhappy, but um, th- this was one of those unique situations where everybody just sort of feels feels good about the situation. Yeah, absolutely, and as they all should in this case. So let's look forward a little bit. Now that Williams' conviction has been overturned, what's next for him as he starts to reacclimate to life as a free man? Yeah, for sure. I mean, he mentioned it himself. He, he, has, he has a lot he wants to do, and a lot to do. He mentioned that he has three children, uh, you know, at the moment, but only one of them were actually there to see his sentence overturned. He, he just sort of mentioned that to sort of show where he is at this moment in his life, that he has relationships he has to repair. You know, he has a, he has a lot of work to do, he said, which is something that um, he definitely didn't shy away from when he left court. Very bright, you know. <laughs> <laughs> very, very, very bright, you know. I just like I was telling everybody, even before I was released, that my focus on my life is to spread my message to everybody. I don't want nobody to ever endure the pain that I had endured for the last decade and a half, because it's incredible. A lot of people don't make it. But something that he wants to do is you know, is speak to children. He he definitely doesn't want his case to just sort of go away at this point. He, he wants to embrace it. He wants to speak to people who have been through the criminal justice system. And he wants to sort of give them an opportunity to to, to change their lives around. And he wants to be a, a positive impact to them and do some things. And, you know, based on how many people came there to support him, I think he has a lot of people on his team here. And I think that that's going to be a, it's probably going to go a long way for him as he, as he spends these first months and years. You know, he's only 50 years old. He has a long way to go, so he has he has a lot of time left to change the narrative and um, really make a positive impact, and that's what it seems like he's going to do. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Joe. Um, keep up the great work, and I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Thanks, Eric. Appreciate you. Did you know St. Peter's in New Brighton, Staten Island's first Roman Catholic parish, was established in 1839? Thank you for listening to the Staten Island Advances from the Scene. If you like what you've heard, please make sure to rate and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit SILive.com for the latest on all these stories and more. Thank you for supporting local journalism.